the last few weeks, we've been exploring what does it look like to be a follower and a disciple of Christ. Now, we started by looking at what does it mean to be a follower in relationship with the Father, and then the Father to be in relationship with us. And then we moved and we started to look at what does it look like to be a follower of Christ, but not just alone, but in the midst of others in community. In the last few weeks, we've started to look at this relationship and what does it mean to be a follower of Christ in the city, but also with those that have not aligned their lives with the life of Christ. And today, we'll be in Acts chapter 16, verses 34 through or verses 16 through 34. And if you're using one of these Bibles, uh, it's on page 771. Now here in this passage, we'll hear about two followers of Jesus that have, in some way or another, allowed God to use their pain and suffering for his own glory. But before I really start kind of going into the reading, I want to give us a little bit of a context to where the story is. The book of Acts is actually a chronological account of the first years of the church in uh, Jerusalem and then as it expands. So about before other followers, in the a year before our reading, we find Paul and other followers in the city of Antioch. Now, Antioch is located in what we would call today modern Syria. So they were there, and the Holy Spirit comes to that group of followers that were uh, praying and uh, fasting and worshiping God, and the Holy Spirit gives them a vision, a vision that they should leave the city and preach the gospel, preach the good news in parts in which the gospel had not been reached yet. So they leave Syria and they go all the way to mod what we would call today modern Turkey. And they travel through that region and they preach the gospel and people get to know Christ during that trip. They return and after a year, they choose to go back and visit these followers. As they are on that trip and they're visiting cities in Turkey, Paul has a vision while he was sleeping. The Holy Spirit invites Paul or asks or encourages Paul to change their itinerary, actually stop where they're going and actually move into a place called Macedonia, which is what we'd call today Greece. And that's where we are in our reading. They are in a city in Greece, and they have this experience. So Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. Once, when they were going to a place of prayer, and they were met by a female slave who had the spirit by which she predicted the future, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I commend you, come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope for money, hope for making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer commanded the guard to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all of the prison doors flew, flew open and everyone's chain came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he, threw, he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then, brought, he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all of the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set up a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Okay, that was a wrong, long reading and not an easy one. Um, and I have to be honest. Many of us are reading this, and we're having to do some pretty significant uh, mental gymnastics to just grasp what we just read. The story starts out with a slave girl that is possessed by a spirit, and not only that, we have her being able to call the future and tell fortunes of people. And my brain is trying to grasp and understand that. But the story doesn't end there. We actually see that Paul is able to remove that spirit from her. And to be completely honest, sometimes it's almost so incredible that I, I want to just not even listen anymore. 
It's so overwhelming. And I try to think, why is that the case? Why is it so hard for me to digest this information? So I keep thinking, you know, is it because I've watched too many horror movies that have, you know, people being possessed by a demon and I'm just too jaded because of it? Or is it because I've seen too many televangelists perform such, as act, such acts as Paul? And I just get like, what is it? Why is it so hard for me to take it in? Now, um, I, I was trying to figure out that, and I ran across a psychologist. Uh, he's a professor in Abilene Christian University. His name is Richard Beck, and he has a theory or maybe a diagnosis for my problem. He said that I potentially have watched too many episodes of Scooby-Doo. Now, how many of you guys have watched an episode of Scooby-Doo? All right, good. I was actually hoping that you guys had, because if you had not, it would be really silly to have this. Um, but, you know, the major, you know, the, the plot of Scooby-Doo is pretty simple, right? You have a dog that speaks, and you have to buy into that first, but after you buy into that, you know, it is a cartoon. Uh, you have some teenagers that they are faced with a problem, and the problem is usually a monster or a ghost that's terrorizing a lot of people around a particular area. Now, you know that, you know, they will be very skeptical of this story, so they will go in and try to use their minds and their reasoning, and they will try to figure it out. You know, they will investigate. And then at some point, they will be able to trap, you know, this monster or this ghost and I think it's pretty consistent. Every single episode, they'll have the ghost there, you know, on his ghostly costume. And then they will unmask the ghost. And there's this moment in which the, the ghost will say something to the nature of, I would have gotten away with it if it were not for meddling kids, right? That's... All right, if you're a really good Scooby-Doo, you know. You know, you're in this together. Now, Dr. Beck describes it in this way, so I want to quote what he said. We learn from Scooby-Doo that we live in the aftermath of the Enlightenment, or the age of reason. We are moderns, where science, technology, and skepticism now rule. With electric lightning, the dark forces of the night have been banished. There is no room for monsters. Psychology and psychiatry have pushed witchcraft and demon possession off stage. Worrying about black cats is just superstitious and irrational. End quote. See, there is a huge part of me that wishes that mysteries did not exist anymore. See, I want to believe that we have overcome in our society all evil. And I want to be able to think that evil has no more power. We have evolved and we are safe. In some way, I kind of believe that the evil in the world or this kind of evil has been banished to the developing third world. And that because we're able to deny people's visas or 
not allow them to cross the border. I am safe. And evil cannot enter into our evolved, modern society. However, this is not true, and we know this. We see evil every time that we turn on the TV. But see, the Bible also teaches that. And I want us to read, and I'm going to read to you a passage from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, we would miss so much if we read this story and thought that everything that we needed to know was material, the things that we could see, touch, measure, or master. But what this story tells me is that there's so much more. There's a spiritual realm in which sometimes in my modern society, I don't get to see very often. My tendency is to try to do this. It's either physical or it is spiritual. However, what this passage tells me is that it's not either or, but it's both and. It's both physical and it is spiritual. See, whenever I'm allowing myself to see this complexity, I'm faced with a story that is very complex. And it's a story that brings to my thought an idea that is very powerful. There is a lot of injustice and pain and unfairness in this world. See, in this story you have a girl that is seen as an object and it's used over and over again by powerful men that only want her for money. To the point that she is spiritually dead. See, she did not deserve it. You also see two men who looked, spoke, believed differently than those around them, and they disturbed the evil status quo. They are blamed as other and dangerous. They suffered because the Holy Spirit was alive in them. They did not deserve to be beaten and jailed either. See, pain and injustice is all around this story. You just can't avoid it. I wish that this was some historical fact that now doesn't occur anymore. But the truth is, I know so many of you have, that have dedicated your lives to the deliverance of those that have been, in some way or another, uh, slaved in our, in our current society. Some of you guys have spent so much time with those that have been victims and survivors of sex trafficking. I also know many of you that have visited those that have been unjustly, unjustly jailed and realized that 
It's not that simple. That things are complex. See, pain and injustice continues to be part of our society. And it's remarkable how close it is to what we see in this story. See, I'm going to be honest with you. I do not like suffering. I have a hard time with suffering. And it's really important for me to remember that even when I sit with people or I sit with my own pain, I want to fix it. If I'm really honest with myself, I just, I want more than fixing my suffering. I want to eradicate suffering from everything around me. About a year ago, Dave delivered a sermon that really touched me. The title was Embracing the Path. Now you can go to the website, download it. You can go to iTunes or any place you get your podcasts. Uh, in that sermon, Dave read from uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. And I'm going to read it to you guys because I think it really helped me reframe how I look at pain, suffering, and injustice in our world currently. He, then he, verse 34, this talks about Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? In that sermon, Dave gave us three points that I think are crucial for us to understand um, what we're discussing in terms of pain, suffering, and injustice in our world. He describes the path of Jesus as one that first is a way of self-denial or self-emptying and self-surrendering. It's about giving up our talents, our resources, actually giving our whole selves for the glory of God and the good of our city and those that are around us. Number two, not two, not three, two. Number two, he talked about the path of Jesus as one in which we get to carry or take up our cross. And he described it this way. The life of the follower will be one that is full of suffering, death, humiliation, rejection, and pain. Not a place of judgment on you, the follower, but a place in which God himself begins to journey with you. There is an understanding here that as a follower, troubles will be part of our journey. And number three, he discussed the fact that joining the path of Jesus is one in which we enter a process of laying down our view of what makes life good. It's a process of laying down and letting go of my image of what makes life good. 
letting go of my image of a good career or what a marriage should look like or my dating relationship should look like or my house should look like. It's a letting go. It's a constant process of letting go of what I imagine is a good life. See, Dave's sermon forced me to do something and recognize that this process of becoming a follower of Jesus is a movement from self-will to self-denial and emptying. It's also a movement from self-protection to accepting my own cross, which includes suffering, pain, death, humiliation. And finally, maybe the harder movement is that I have to move as a follower of Jesus. I have to move from self-realization to laying down and surrendering my ideal earthly life and follow Christ. Now, I remember listening to that sermon and just struggling with it. And as I came back to this and trying to understand, I, I was able to find a description that was so helpful for me. So I'm going to read it to you guys. And I hope that it illustrates a little bit of what does this process looks like to stay and to accept that this world is a world that has suffering in it. So let me read, quote, rather than directly facing the pain of existence, we avoid it, sticking our head in the sand, avoiding difficult choices or hard conversations. We would rather live with symptoms than suffering. I think this avoidance of suffering model applies to religious faith as well, specifically Rather than bear the pain and burden of existence, we seek to quickly explain away the suffering with answers that are trite and silly. For example, Christians are notorious for saying horrible things to grieving people. Parents who have lost a child routinely face the following comments at, uh, comments at church. She's in a better place. Or God must have needed him for a purpose in heaven, people would say. See, these are chilling comments. They are intended for comfort. But what they really, but what is really going on is a refusal to suffer. The person is trying to get around suffering. Amazingly, these comments suggest to the grieving parents or the person suffering that there is no reason to suffer at all. Suffering is, through a quick theological fix, subtracted out of existence. All is sunshine and roses. From a biblical perspective, rather than to sit with Job, people seek to explain the situation, to grasp the higher meaning, the reason, lacking the courage to lament. We live with neurotic theological formulations. And he, end, he describes it in this way. 
to live neurotically as a Christian is to use faith as a substitute for suffering. Faith becomes then a quick fix or a band-aid we offer to offers to others, ourselves, and the world. But he finishes with this that I think is very important. But to live authentically as a Christian is to lament and to move into the suffering. And in this, we are faced with a very difficult practice to actually sit and move with ourselves and others into suffering. This is particularly hard, he says, in our uh, society because we are addicted to happiness. Now, Paul and Silas's attitude in that prison cannot be understood without understanding that suffering was an integral part of how they saw themselves as followers of Christ. It just doesn't make sense. For many years, I've seen this passage in this way. Paul and Silas are these superhero Christians. They have like this kind of superhero spirituality that they can sit in the midst of that suffering and they are so superhero powerful that the jailer becomes a follower because they see or he sees how powerful they are. But see, that story, it's not exactly like that. The way I see it now, it's more in this way. Paul and Silas were very familiar and embraced the path of Jesus. They surrendered their will. They accepted pain and suffering as integral parts of being a follower. And ultimately, they laid down their personal view of what a good life was all about for the sake of following and joining the suffering Christ. Then, only when they were able to join Christ, they were able to be in a place of worship. Now, this place of suffering is where we find the jailer. And we meet with the jailer. Now, if, if we see, the jailer was the most powerful person in that prison. He had what would be considered to be a really good job. He had a good place in society. Um, looking from a distance, we would all think that, man, this guy has everything going for him. He has privilege. He has um, everything that people would want from him. However, in this story, we are able to see a picture of something else. We learn from this story that even though he had some privileges, he was also trapped. In this society, the jailer was responsible for the crimes and actually liable for the crimes of every single person jailed in that room. So if they had left, that meant, that meant that he would be killed. So he was choosing to end his own life before he met the end of his social standing. See, I really relate to the jailer. Although from the outside, from 
a long period of my life, people could look at me and think, oh, things are going okay, things are great. Internally, that was not what was going on with me. I have a tendency or a natural tendency toward depression, and I've found myself overwhelmed with despair to the point in which I could not even see the point of continuing living. And I know that in a room this big with so many people, there are many that have experienced this, that they have looked at their life and thought, things should be great. I should be experienced. I have achieved everything that I wanted to achieve, yet I feel trapped and in despair, hopeless and exhausted. Life is not going the way I thought it should have been should have gone. And I believe that this is why the jailer's question is so important. Because he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now in the Greek, you can look at that word saved and also translate it as delivered. So it's really hard for me not to read this and think of him asking, sirs, What must I do to be delivered? Or even yet, sirs, what must I do to be delivered from this life that should be great, but has actually entrapped me? Or even deeper yet, sirs, what must I do to be delivered like you have been delivered? See, this whole passage is about being delivered. We start with the slave girl, then Paul and Silas, and now the jailer. But it would be a mistake for us to think that this is just being delivered from the physical problems that they were encountering. encountering. Part of this deliverance is a realization that there is more to suffering today than what we want to accept. That there is a spiritual warfare for our souls and the souls around us. See, it appears that Paul and Silas were able to grasp that reality. And the power of their surrender was the witness to the jailer. That in the midst of their suffering, they were delivered. And the jailer wanted to experience that power, not their power, but the power of God. So what do we do with it? See, we'll have an opportunity now to share in communion, in prayer, and in worship. And I would like to encourage you, or I'd like to ask you guys to do something. In a few minutes, uh, we'll sing and we'll have communion, but now I'd like for you to meditate and think about this question. So if you feel comfortable, you can close your eyes, and I'm going to give you guys this question. I want you guys to sit with it and think, and I promise you nobody's going to, you know, take anything from you while you're closing your eyes. I think I'll keep my eyes open. And I'll watch everybody, so don't worry. Maybe I'll get your stuff. (laughs) All right, so close your eyes. 
And I'm going to give you guys this question. Where do you see suffering and pain? Try to imagine it. Where do you see suffering and pain? It may be in your own life. Maybe in the lives of those close to you. Or even in our city. Where do you see suffering and pain? All right, now you can open your eyes. And I'd like to ask you guys to do this while we're sharing communion. If you see the suffering in yourself, I would like to encourage you to share it. There are men and women that will be ready to sit with you in your suffering and your pain. Now, there will be some that have been preparing for this. They will be standing in the back, close to the respond banner, but it's not limited to that. There are men and women in this church that are ready to sit with you in the midst of your pain. You do not need to go through it alone. Now, you may have been reminded in your vision of someone else that is suffering. I would like to encourage you to reach out to them. It may be a text. It may be somebody in this room. It may be an email that you will send. It will be somebody that we'll invite you to do coffee with. And then you'll be able to sit with them and lament with them. Maybe for some of you, it was a particular group in this city that you saw. A group that has experienced injustice and oppression that causes them so much pain and suffering. I'd like to encourage you to allow that vision to move into compassion and that compassion to turn to action so that you can use your privilege for the benefit of those who may be suffering because they don't have any. I'm going to pray and then We'll go into communion. So if you would like to stand, I'll pray. And then uh, communion has been served. There are tables all around the room for us to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you rumble, humbled by the fact that you love us so much and that you care for us. Even in the midst of our suffering, Father, I ask for your grace, your power. I ask that you help us, Father, as a body to sit with pain and to know that it does not mean that you're far away, but that you're really, really close to us. Father, thank you because we have a family and that we do not need to go through suffering alone. Help us to reach out. Help us to know that you're the one that has the words. Father, 
we also ask for our city. Father, there are so many in our society that do not get to voice and to express that they are being mistreated. Father, so many of us have so much power, so much privilege. And I hope, Father, that you move us into compassion and action, that we may be of service, and that your name may be glorified. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.